Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Jack Johnson. You're listening to Don't Look Now from Jack's brand new album, Meet the Moonlight. It's his eighth studio album, and Pitchfork called it, quote, his best album yet. And I was particularly excited to talk with Jack because the last time I interviewed him was exactly 20 years ago. It was at the start of his music career and the very start of my journalism career. I was freelancing for an all-weekly, and Jack was my very first cover story. Lucky for me, I am a hoarder of sentimental things, so I kept a copy of that paper and was able to show it to Jack. You weren't the one that called me Jerk Johnson, were you? No! (laughs) Jack is an environmentalist, and his values inspire the way that he eats. So we're going to get some great no-waste kitchen and cooking tips from cookbook author Anne-Marie Bonneau, known as the Zero Waste Chef on Instagram. But first, my conversation with Jack Johnson. Nice to meet you, too. Well, on that note, I brought this relic. So I actually interviewed you in 2002. Oh, wow. January 14th. I kept all of my old writing. So this is the synthesis. It was an alt-weekly in Chico, California that's not around anymore. And I was still a senior in college, actually. I went back and I read this article, and it was just cringy, you know, to read your old writing. Sometimes I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Um, Wait, you weren't the one that called me Jerk Johnson, were you? No. (laughs) Uh, One time, like up in that region, it I never called the person back. I just got a cell phone. It was really funny. It was kind of traumatic for me at the time because I hadn't done much press. And then like, I missed all this guy's calls. I never did the interview. And I got into town and they pointed out like, oh, you got a really bad write-up. And literally called me Jerk Johnson in the article. Just make it, it, making sure it wasn't you. No, it wasn't me. <laughs> I'm <laughs> saying mine was bad because my writing is okay. embarrassing oh, okay. from when I was 22. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say anything That's bad funny. about you. <laughs> I just did it. But I was Thanks. wondering if you had anything that you've created in your past that you felt that way about. I feel like with writers, that happens a lot. But like you had these early hits. Yeah. Is there music or writing that you're like, oh, yeah, quite a bit of it. I mean, I feel pretty lucky that I hear it all. And my worst reaction is kind of like a little bit slight embarrassment with some of the writing and then things I wish I could change a little. But we can change them live, which is really fun. So some of the songs. We'll reinterpret them live and I'll even change some lyrics sometimes. I can't think of an example, but like, or I'll just dodge lyrics that I really feel, (laughs) you know, embarrassed about. I'll just like skip that verse or something. Um, But yeah, I get that too. (laughs) There's a couple of things that you'd said in that interview that I wanted to see if you still felt the same way about 20 years later. So you said, Uh -uh. quote, I get really grumpy if I don't surf for a few weeks. If I don't surf, I don't feel in tune with what's around me. And you said that you tried to play shows that are near the coast so you could surf as much as possible. Now that you've been touring like crazy for 20 years, is it the same? It's exactly the same. I'll I'll stand by that. My wife kind of says it's like, similar to like a PMS type thing. Like she can really tell if it's two, <laughs> two weeks go by and I haven't at least gone for like a swim and a body of water, but especially if I can surf, 
then she can totally see my mood just start to switch after about two weeks. I actually, we were in Texas and I surfed there randomly for the first time in a long time. There was a wave pool there and we got to go surfing, which was really surprising for us to get that feeling mm. in Texas of all places. So it was pretty fun. But yeah, I, it's just my natural state. I've been surfing ever since I was a little kid. So when I go for a while without doing it, I definitely like me and my wife joke about waxing and waning on tour. I definitely wax while I'm on tour and I gain some pounds from all the catering. <laughs> and then I get home and I wane again. And it's mostly because I don't really have any other way to work out except for surfing. Like that's the only thing I know how to do to stay in shape, you know? So yeah. when I'm on tour, it's a little dangerous <laughs> if it's too long. Jack was born and raised in Hawaii on the North shore of Oahu, which is where he still lives now with his family. Your dad was a pro surfer and you were a pro surfer for a while too. So uh, talk about your life growing up with surfing and then kind of what happened when you were 17 years old. Yeah, sure. Yeah. My, my dad would laugh if anybody ever called him a pro surfer. He's kind of from this generation before pros really. And sometimes it gets exaggerated. I was like a little bit of a pro in the sense that I got to surf in a few pro events, but I had a bunch of friends that became really good pros and it was never really my intention. It's like a lot of kids that grew up in Hawaii get a chance to flirt with pro surfing. And that was me. And then, yeah, I did have, I had a really bad accident right around 17. A week before I had my finals of the trials to get into the pipeline masters, which was a big deal at 17. So I thought I was pretty cool. And then about a week later, I took a face plant and I lost a bunch of teeth and mm. I got about a hundred plus stitches in my face. So it really changed everything. It was like the highest moment and then the most humbling moment all within one week. Yeah, it was a nice time because I had music. My kids and I talk about that a lot. It's really nice when you have music because even if everything else in your life switches, you have time to sit down and play music, you know? So I had a lot of time to play music for a while while I was out of the water. I just listened to this podcast yesterday and they were saying that people who have multiple worlds to live in don't tend to have depression as much as those who just have a like mm. one or two, because then, yeah, if something goes down, you're like, Ooh, I have this community. I have this thing that makes me happy instead of just losing everything at That's once. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. It's neat when you hear somebody articulate something. Like I thought, I've, I guess I've thought about that a lot because whenever like my kids are teenagers and they t we all tend to get injured just from pushing it with surfing and stuff. But we always talk about like, oh, isn't it so nice to have guitar as a thing that you can do when you're stuck and you sprain an ankle or you get stitches or so that's really cool to hear that, that idea. It's true. I think that could help from depression if you have different avenues to go down. Everybody understands that feeling when you go swimming or you go in the ocean and you come out and you're so hungry and food tastes so much better. Uh, what are some of your mm -hmm. favorite things to eat after you've gone surfing? That's a good question. So I used to always just get out of the water and I'm right at my, my house growing up in Hawaii. And so whatever my mom, my mom mostly did the cooking in my house. Um, so I didn't really associate anything for a long time. It was just whatever was was around. But then when I moved to California for college and I learned about burritos, because I'd always, I'd had a few burritos growing up, but I'd never like had a proper burrito in California. And then once I tasted that, that was pretty much after every surf from the age of 18 to 22. It was just always a burrito. We'd go find a good burrito after we'd surf somewhere. And so now, yeah, I definitely associate the uh, the burrito with the after surf food. So relatable. I'm from California and I've lived in Seattle now for like 17 years and there are no good burritos up here. I haven't found one in 17 years. And the California burrito, yeah. man, it changes you. It transforms you. It does. Yeah. Santa Barbara had a lot of great in the 90s when I was at college. There was a place called TA's. It was a, I don't think it's there anymore. But Freebirds is still there. We went and had I used a, to go there too. Every time my wife and I are in Santa Barbara, we always kind of do a little 
memory lane around driving around to where our houses were in, in Isla Vista. And, and then we always stop and get food somewhere that we used to eat if it's still around. And Freebirds burritos, we just had some of those the other day. Oh, you did? I was, I was really actually going to ask yeah. you about Freebirds. When I would go visit my friends down there, that's where we would go yeah. to late at night. That place is epic. So good. Jack has been playing music since he was a little kid, but it wasn't something he planned to do for a career. After graduating from UC Santa Barbara with a film degree, he traveled the world directing surf documentaries with his friends, all of which have amazing soundtracks, by the way. Jack's big break into music came when he met the musician G-Love through a surfing buddy. G-Love heard Jack's song, Rodeo Clowns, and asked him to record it on his album. That song ended up being the biggest hit of the album, and soon Jack got his own record deal. What's the story behind the song Banana Pancakes? Is there a real banana pancake uh, source? Yeah, that's a good question. It's not not so much to do with the food. That was just something, I guess, at that moment I had been making recently for her. So my wife and I have been together 29 years. And so I guess when I wrote that song, we were probably like late 20s or something. And um, we were living together and we had our first kid around then. And um, I'd actually stayed up all night writing this other song that was more like a deep cut on that same album called No Other Way. There are certain songs I'll stay up real late and then kind of write them through the night when nobody else is around and it's quiet. And then there's other ones like Banana Pancakes that start as a total joke. And I mean it literally like so I played her no other way. And I was trying to get her attention. She was doing something. And, you know, you feel like you've just written this really nice thing. And then, like, I don't mean to make her sound bad because the poor thing has to hear my songs every time I got a new idea. And not, they're not all good. And so, anyway, I played a song. And she didn't really even turn around. And then I was thinking, like, ah, oh, I guess not that good. And then I, I got kind of frustrated. And I just, I said, I was like, you hardly even notice when I try to show you this song is meant to keep you from doing what you're supposed to. It was just that first line. And then she turned around and she was like, oh, but that's a good one. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, shoot. Okay. That gave me the spark for that song. A lot of times, the love songs are just me trying to make my wife laugh, and then it sticks around. And then the breakup songs are me trying to cheer my friends up. Oh, so it's about other people's breakups. <laughs> going breakups. Yeah. <laughs> I have to write from that perspective. We've been together 29 years, so I don't even know what that's like. Yeah, you don't remember heartbreak. You were just a baby. But I got to... I got to write both types, you know, so whenever a friend goes through a breakup, it's a really good thing for me. I finally can get some new material. What's it like, man? Tell me, what does yeah. it feel like? I need to totally. know. <laughs> Empathize. So yeah. how did the banana pancakes enter that song? I mean, I wrote that song all within a day. I mean, okay. if, if you listen to the words, it's the kind of song it sounds like it's written in a day. But it was, um, make you banana pancake. Like, I think we used to make them on the weekends a lot, you know, mm -hmm. especially when the kids were little and our kids love food. Like, we're really lucky because we cook together as a family a lot. Everybody oh, nice. gets in there and, like, is chopping things up. And everybody kind of has certain things that they're good at. So on Sundays, we always do big brekkie, pretty much like home fries. And I have one son who, like, 
masters that. And another one is really good at making eggs. None of us are that good, but just meaning that like that's, <laughs> yeah. nobody has to say anything anymore. One guy does the eggs. And then my daughter, she's really good at baking. So she'll always make either the batter for the pancakes and stuff, or she'll make muffins or some other thing. So anyways, yeah, I think the banana pancakes, it just started. My mom used to make them too. And mm-hmm. she has like a certain way where you just, I don't have like a special recipe, but you just, whatever kind of pancakes you're going to make. But then you take the bananas and you take a fork and you just mush them up with a fork as they go mm-hmm. in. And that's how we do it. Some people slice them and stuff like that, but ours are just mushed up bananas. And in Hawaii, you don't always use syrup. Is that right? Um, My kids do. Okay. And then they have this lilikoi butter they like a lot too. Yeah. Lilikoi being uh, the Hawaiian word for passion fruit. I was trying and to so- bait you because I read some article where you were like, we put honey on our pancakes in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> People misquote me too. They can't believe everything you read, you know. No, but we do. I mean, I like, that's funny you say, I like honey. My kids kind of like the Lilikoi butter. Yeah. Depends on how many you're eating. I usually try like a little something different on everyone. I like the idea that you're being misquoted about honey and syrup. You're like, I did not say that. I did not say that. Controversial. Yeah. I don't know. There is no pancake that can taste as good as how a cartoon pancake looks. The big stack in a cartoon with the butter pat and the cascading syrup. I've never had a pancake taste that good. I want one that's 10 feet tall. This morning um, with the butter thing at the airport, like we just went ahead and I got full pancakes and it looked like that cartoon version. (gasps) It was like a stack and I had the butter on the top and everything. It was pretty good. Like you said, it wasn't that good. Looked good though. It looked good. Yeah. Hold on. Which airport was that? I need to know for Cartoon Pancake Airport. Yeah, we were we flew into Denver and we flew out of Dallas. It was the Dallas airport where we had breakfast. That's the Pancake Airport. Woof. Who else is craving pancakes now? I'm definitely going to be making pancakes this weekend. I've been listening to his song, Banana Pancakes, a whole bunch since we chatted. I hadn't listened to it in a long time. So maybe I'll have to mash up some bananas and put them into the batter. Time for a quick break. But when we come back, Jack has a very specific writer he requests from concert venues. But it's less about making him happy and more about pleasing Mother Earth. Jack Johnson has always been very environmentally conscious, and he truly walks the walk, requesting venues go plastic-free when he performs, and doing a program he calls Farm to Stage. The plastics part is a really important one. We try to have uh, reusable pint cup programs wherever we can and eliminate the sale of single-use plastic as much as we can. But we also try to meet people where they're at, because as, as we tour, we're in different regions around the world. Some places are ahead of us, you know, and they have like really progressive things that we learn from the venue. And in other places, it's like we have to push pretty hard to even have the reusable pint cup program be there. But we can't always ban the single use plastic sales, but we try our best. So it's so important because we see a lot of the microplastics on the beaches in Hawaii. So growing up, I've seen the beach become more and more colorful. And then the farm to stage. That's the other idea is trying to support all the local food systems in every area we tour. So we try to source as much of the food from farmers markets or directly from the farmers, um, make a certain radius and we shoot to have it all from within there. I mean, 10 years ago, we actually used to bring somebody on tour to go out in the mornings and shop at the local farmers Mm -hmm. markets and bring the food back so the caterers could use those ingredients. And now it's like almost every place you can find a catering company that's already switched on to this stuff and, you know, really into it. And so 
this last tour, I mean, the food's been so amazing. Mm. You know, you, when you go somewhere, you want to see the sights and you want to experience the place. And when you taste food from the region you're in, you really get a richer experience. So that's one thing we do. And then we also try to, instead of being like caller number nine, you win tickets. We've had this thing where people can win to come to a farm to stage dinner at the show prepared by a local chef. That's like another way we can ahead of time that's try awesome. to support the local food system. I had read that the crew behind the scenes, you give them silverware that they can reuse and you give them water bottles. Oh, yeah. Is that something you guys still yeah. do? Yeah. It's cool to see our crew that's always on the run because they have the ones from like 10 years ago and all the different bottles from over the years. But a lot of times we have a whole new crew driving the trucks and the buses. And so we always outfit everybody at the beginning of the tour with all the reusable like insulated cups for the coffee or the tea and then reusable um, utensils and all those kind of things at the start of a tour. And it's cool. It's it's neat to see when people, a lot of times they'll say like, oh, I've never even heard of this idea, but I love it. And I'm going to always use this now. Or That's the cool thing is to hear how often the venues, even if we have to push a little, once they do it for the first time, it's almost every time we come back and they say, ever since that show where we started this reusable pint cup program, now we do it every show because it was actually pretty easy. So it's always cool to know when you've like switched somebody's mindset on something that's when it's really going to work. I mean, I'm just one show coming through. If it's for that one show, sure, it's a little better, but it's really the changes made when that venue makes the swap and then it happens for every show. You know, right. then, it's, then it's lasting change. With something like the Pint Cup program, is that venue wide or is that just behind the scenes? No, venue wide. Hmm. And we've had some venues, um, Santa Barbara Bowl, we're really good friends with them and they're like-minded on all this. So they were really excited to do a show. The first show we ever did, there was no reusable bottle sold at the show. Everybody mm -hmm. was given a pint cup as they came in wow. and we had refill water stations all around the venue. And then if you got cocktails or beer or anything at the bars, it was all a refill program. And uh, we did a waste audit before the show. And then we did one after our waste audit, like on their normal shows to kind of see what the tonnage of waste. And then we did one after and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it was really substantial. And we've been doing it backstage for, I mean, almost since we began, yeah. but um, out in the front of the house. Yeah. The last 10 years, it's been a nice evolution of eliminating the single use plastic. And then even with the, the vendors out front, we push on that a little bit to see if we can have vendors that are sourcing local. So then it's not just backstage catering, but out in the front of the house too. I admire that so much. I'm just like you. I try to be as zero waste as possible. And it's hard when you go out and you go to these shows and you don't have a choice. Like, you know, yeah. some of these places, they won't let you bring your own water bottle in. Yeah, and so yeah, you're definitely. like, Ugh, I'm buying plastic. And that's cool that they actually listen. And, you know, you've helped make a difference. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a nice conversation. We've learned so much from other bands like Willie Nelson and Neil Young, people like that when we're touring about like running our trucks and buses on biodiesel and you make a little change and then, you know, you pass the, the word on. Jack and his wife, Kim, started two nonprofits, the Johnson Ohana Foundation and Kukua Hawaii Foundation, supporting environmental education in Hawaiian schools and communities. They send kids on farm field trips and teach about the importance of recycling and going plastic free. Of course, Hawaii is a huge tourist destination here in Seattle in the winter. Freaking everybody's in Hawaii. It's, you know, it's not that far away. Mm -hmm. And the thing that right. I hear every time is the first thing we do after we land is we go to Costco. And I'm right, always like, right. what? You go to Costco and you go to Hawaii? I just don't like that. And so could yeah. you talk a little bit about what people could do when they visit Hawaii to help the local economy and culture and be better for the environment? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's another one I could go on for so long because it's such a... Uh important part of our history. The statistic you hear all the time is that 90% of our food is actually shipped into Hawaii, which is really sad when you see all this agricultural land that could be growing so much. But because of the history of agriculture in Hawaii and sugarcane and pineapple, basically, um, it was all being shipped out. And so 
all this farmland sat for a long time. A lot of it has been getting rezoned for development and different things. So it's a really important thing when people travel to Hawaii to support those restaurants that are sourcing from the local farmers and and supporting the, the local food system. If you're going to come to a place and you want to see the beautiful sunsets, you know, and you want to hear the music of the place, and it just makes sense you want to taste the food that's actually grown from there. And yeah. tourist industry, for better or for worse, is a big part of Hawaii and our economy there. so many ways to do what Jack does on tour in your own home, specifically in your own kitchen. I'm going to try my best to not sound pretentious when I tell you about all of the things that I do to cut down on waste in my home, but it's a way of life that's really important to me. So I started only using cloth napkins. I make sure that I have a ton of them so I never run out when a bunch of them are in the washer. Instead of buying plastic sandwich bags and freezer bags, I try to use containers and reusable silicon bags. And yes, I I'm one of those people who does wash out a Ziploc if I use one. I bring mesh produce bags to the grocery store instead of using their plastic bags. And I switch to a package-free bar of dish soap, which I really love, and bar shampoo. But not everybody likes this way of life. My mom gets really annoyed when she visits that I won't let her use paper towels. My goal is to buy one roll of paper towels a year, and I mostly use it for cooking bacon. But of course, there is someone who takes zero waste to a whole nother level, Anne-Marie Bonneau. Anne-Marie has a cookbook called The Zero Waste Chef, and she shares all kinds of cool zero waste kitchen and cooking tips on her Instagram page, Zero Waste Chef. One of the coolest things that I saw that you did was doing dehydrated fruit in a car. Yeah, I first did that a couple of years ago. It was so hot. And I had some tomatoes and I thought I'm going to try dehydrating them in the car because I had dehydrated fruit in a solar dehydrator in the past. So I took a cookie sheet and I put a cooling rack inside the cookie sheet. And then I just spread my tomatoes across that and put it in the rear windshield of the car and they dehydrated. And then several months later, I was in the middle of cooking a dish that called for tomatoes Halfway through, when everything's cooking and bubbling, I realized, oh, I don't have any tomatoes. But I had those dehydrated tomatoes. So I just grabbed those, put them in. It was delicious. So this year, a friend gave me kind of a big box of apricots from her tree. And I thought, how am I going to deal with all of these? So I did it again. I put them in the car. Dehydrated them in the car. It worked really well. The neighbors must have wondered, what is she doing carrying those trays of apricots up to the car? I'm sure they already know you're a little nuts. They see all your experiments. Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. (laughs) It makes sense. It is like an oven. How long would you need to leave something in? Slash, what kind of characteristics would somebody look for to know that it's done? So those apricots I left in for two days. It wasn't a heat wave. It was just regular summer heat. When they're done, you don't want them brittle. You want them kind of um, pliable. When did you start this journey and what started it for you? And I had been reading about plastic pollution in the oceans. This was back in 2011. I knew plastic was bad, but I recycled all of my plastic. So I thought it's, it's fine because it's being made into all of these new things. You know, then I discovered, oh, no, that's not happening. And the oceans are filled with it. And it's just so heartbreaking seeing those images of albatrosses feeding plastic to their young. And I was so disgusted and I wanted to get off of the stuff. So I told my daughter, she was 16 at the time. I said, we have to get off of plastic. 
And she said, okay, great. She was really into it. It just kind of snowballed from there. You can't do it overnight. The plastic is everywhere. I remember our first trip to the grocery store when we decided, okay, we're breaking up with plastic. We went all around the aisles and in the middle section and I plastic was everywhere. I told Mary Catherine, this is impossible. We're never going to be able to do this. I can't even get a roll of bathroom tissue. But she started slow, bringing her own bags and buying from the supermarket's bulk section and shopping at the farmer's market. Are you basically at this point 100% plastic free? Well, not 100%. I buy milk and cream and returnable, refillable glass bottles. And those have a little plastic ring on them. My kids are grown, so I'm not responsible for anything they bring into our home. (laughs) Once I had my daughter and I, she was 13. We had a little spat over something and she stormed out. And when she came home, she had a bottle of water. (laughs) She just looked at me when she walked in the door. That was her big rebellion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And was she someone who normally wouldn't buy bottled water, but she knew that it would make you mad? Oh, absolutely. That was intentional. She made sure I saw it. I guess you should be happy that that's the way she rebels. It's not drugs. It's not alcohol. It's bottled water. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what my friends told me. You even make things like your own mustard. Are there things that you just haven't been able to give up that you just love and it's kind of your comfort and you say, you know what, I'm doing 98%. I'm going to let myself have this. Like one of the things I've heard that's really hard to find that always has non-recyclable packaging is chips. Oh, chips. Oh, but stovetop popcorn is so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a Whirly Pop. I love my Whirly Pop. I have one too. Oh, aren't they great? Yeah. You know, I get this question a lot. There really isn't anything I miss. I got into making sourdough and fermenting all the things. It's all so delicious. I can't. I couldn't go back to the, the old times. Another package-free snack comes from Anne-Marie's Garden. If you're growing sunflowers... Don't just compost them when the blooms start to wither. Yeah, there are seeds in those sunflowers. Well, as long as the birds and squirrels don't get them before you do. You know, you grow the sunflowers and they bloom and they develop these little tiny flowers. There's one on each seed. And after a while, the sunflowers become droopy and the flower will be hanging over facing down. The petals will dry up and fall off. At that point, you can... Pop the seeds out right there. That's what I did. It's easier if you tear the sunflower into smaller pieces if you have a big giant sunflower. I just spread them out on a piece of burlap and they're in my living room right now drying out. And you can either just eat them raw or you can soak them in a brine and then roast them. Yeah, I have delicious sunflower seeds. And I was amazed that big sunflower came from one seed. It's incredible. If I keep going, I have sunflowers for life. From one seed, because you can just replant one of your new seeds. From one seed. I mean, I have hundreds of seeds. That's so cool. It does feel like magic. Yesterday, I just harvested like 27 leeks from my garden, and that came from one start. It's so satisfying. Like, this costs $3. (laughs) I know. I know. Yeah. Like growing money out in your garden. Mmm, money. (laughs) Yum. (laughs) What can people do when they have a jar full of honey and you can't really scrape much out with the spoon, but you see it all around the inside of the jar still? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you can make tea. You can make salad dressing. You can do that with mustard, too, when you just have a little bit left in the mustard jar. Oil and vinegar and whatever. Shake it up in the honey or peanut butter or jam. You could make overnight oats in the jar. Ooh, Yeah. Yeah. 
delicious. You get every last little bit of food out of it. And you've delayed washing that jar for another day. Yeah, those are the worst jars to wash. They're so sticky. Yeah, they are. I'm curious how you find ways to do it economically, because there are ways to be zero waste that can be cheaper, like growing your own food is really cheap. But when I have gone into my grocery store that has uh, bulk items, I was going to fill up with olive oil and it costs three times as much than it did to buy the initial bottle at Trader Joe's. And I was like, I can't do this. This is way too expensive. And there's a lot of items I have found in bulk are far more expensive. So how do you balance that out? You know, as soon as you said that, I thought about the olive oil because it's true. Mm-hmm. The olive oil in bulk is is more expensive. But I tell people it's um, a package deal. So overall, I save money. Some things I buy are more expensive. You know, the farmer's market is more expensive mm-hmm. than if I shopped at a discount grocery store. But I don't waste anything. Just use everything. The average family of four in the U.S. spends $1,800 on food every year that they don't eat. Wow. Yeah. I don't buy a lot of stuff. I do things like make my own vegetable broth, make my own wine vinegar. And those are easy. I definitely save money. But yeah, I understand some of the things do cost more. So start with the easy stuff. Start with the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. What are the low-hanging fruit? How would you uh, advise people to get started? Stop drinking bottled water. Oh, that's that my was- biggest pet peeve, especially up here. I live in Seattle and we have really, really oh. good tap water. And so when I see people have a fridge full of bottled water, I do not understand why our water is so good and it tastes great. Yeah, yeah. It's just marketing. It's, I don't know, 3,000 times more expensive than tap water or mm-hmm. 10,000, something like that. That would be an easy one. Eat more fruit and vegetables. You'll cut all of that plastic. You'll probably save money. Now, results may vary, but like you might improve your health. I'm a lot healthier than I was before I started all of this because I cleaned up my diet, which wasn't my intention. I just wanted to cut the plastic. And then I realized, oh, I'm not eating highly processed food. Yeah, eat more uh, apples and oranges. (laughs) One other perk of breaking up with things like paper and plastic plates, it might actually make your food taste better. There was a study. People were given a brownie, the same brownie, They received it on a napkin. Other people received it on a paper plate with a fork. And then the third group received it on fine china with a nice fork. And the people who received it on the china were willing to pay a lot more money for it than the people who who got theirs on a napkin. So it was all just perception. And they also judged the taste and the quality as being superior. I think one of the things we all struggle with is vegetable waste, especially lettuces and greens and herbs. How many times have you bought a bunch of cilantro for a recipe, used two tablespoons, and then watched the bouquet get slimy in the fridge? Oh, it makes me feel so guilty. Anne-Marie says the best way to combat this kind of food waste is to push yourself to cook things right away. So instead of waiting around for a reason to use the rest of that cilantro, throw it in the blender with some garlic, oil, salt, maybe some other leftover herbs you have rolling around, maybe some Indian or Middle Eastern spices, maybe an anchovy or two, and you can blend up a green sauce that you can spoon over eggs or fish or a grain bowl or spread on a sandwich. And if your greens are starting to wilt, throw them in a smoothie, saute them. They're going to get wilty anyway. You can throw them in a scramble or a soup or a stew or a curry. And Marie reminds us that even if it's not pretty, it still tastes good. 
do you deal with judgment, being judgmental of other people? I have found that the deeper I get into this, the harder it is for me to see, for example, people eating dinner at home on paper plates. It's really hard for me not to judge. How do you deal with living this lifestyle when you're in the vast minority of people who live this way? Right. Several people have asked me, what's the hardest part about this lifestyle? And I usually say other people. In what way? Yeah. Well, people try to give me things all the time, thinking you don't know what kind of stress this causes me. Well, I was raised in a very religious household, so I, it really kind of turned me off. <laughs> and so I, I don't think I'm that judgmental as a result. Do you feel like the religious upbringing was very judgmental and so you've turned away from that? Right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I hope I'm not very judgmental. People do tell me that all the time on social media. They say, like, I appreciate that you're not judgy and not telling us all, you know, we have to be perfect. So I had a friend, she told me, Anne-Marie, if you were preachy, you'd be unbearable. Nobody wants to hear, you know, what are you doing? Why are you buying that? Why are you drinking that bottled water? It just will turn people off. And instead, I just kind of do my thing. And then I've had friends and family see me and they might think, oh, gee, that's a good idea. What Anne-Marie's doing there? I might start to do that. After the break, Jack Johnson shares the sweet love story of his last meal. What would your last meal be? Oh, man, I've been thinking about it, and it's definitely difficult. Like, I was thinking in different ways. Like, is it just like you're thinking just about taste? Or do you want to have something that spurs on memories? Mm. And so I kind of went that route. I started thinking, like, I'd want to do something where the flavors reminded me and took me back to a certain place. So my meal, I think, would be kind of boring for the taste buds, but I think it would be good for the mind. Mm. And so I'd probably do sautéed vegetables because my wife and I, when we were traveling through Europe, in 1997, we always tell the kids and we tell stories like back in 97. And it's so weird because it's like when your parents tell stories of like back in 69. Yeah. But now we always say it back in 97. We lived in a van for four months and we had a really small budget so we could last for four months. So we would mostly just go to the farmer's market or, you know, sometimes it was a supermarket. But whenever we saw a farmer's market, it's like feels like you're in Europe. We'd like pull in and we'd be able to share a little basket and stuff and we'd fill everything it was a lot less expensive than going to restaurants. And so we would make a meal in the van. And it's kind of like where we started learning how to really cook because we were pretty mm. young. And so we would butter olive oil and then add the onions and the garlic. And like when you first learn that that's how you start with like that smell of the onions and the garlic. Yeah. And then we would just add whatever we get that day. A lot of times it was like potatoes or bell peppers and different things. So those memories, it was like that was kind of our meal almost every night. And mm. then sometimes we'd add like a curry sauce or like whatever we could find. But sometimes it was literally just like salted vegetables, you know, and that was it. That'd be my last meal just to take me back to that time. Because that was kind of when we figured out that we were truly ready for marriage. Because if you live in a van with somebody, we never got a hotel room one night yeah. for four months. And so when that trip was over, it was like, okay, we didn't kill each other. If we can last through that, we can probably make it through the rest of this thing. So oh. yeah, I would just probably make that meal. I love that. And you were traveling through Europe? Yeah, it was Europe and it was really fun. It was... um we bought this van that if you kind of, if you let go of the steering wheel for even a second, it would veer hard oh, to the right. No power and steering. So like, they had to kind of fight it left the whole time. It had a license plate that said UMP something. So we called it the ump. 
it would break down a lot. And I would, I kind of learned a lot about trying to fix engines and stuff on that trip. And it was like the ump always made the final call. That was like what we'd always say, because it would just decide where we were going to end up right. a lot of times. Cause like we would overheat and be like, Hey, I guess we're going to stop in this town for a couple of days. Yeah. It was a beautiful time. We loved, mm. there was one time where one of my wife's friends joined us for like a week. She was somewhere and we picked her up and then thinking of food, we only had like a little bit of cash, like in the, whatever country we were in. I forget what country we were even in, but like we only had like $10 left. And we didn't want to change any more money because we were about to leave that country the next day. And we were so hungry. We didn't have any food like left in the kitchen or anything. And they went and they bought something from, I think it was McDonald's or somewhere like a fast food place. And they had a burger and I got back and I saw the wrappers there and they hadn't thrown the wrappers away good enough. And they didn't save me. And I got <gasps> so mad at them. That was like a time where like it was almost over, you know, but no, it wasn't that close. But I remember being that's, really mad at her. That's I bad. Made it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you didn't get to eat that day or you had to eat like the last potato. No, I mean, potato. I probably a little something. <laughs> I'm not trying to make it that dire, but I was really, I think I skipped dinner that night. For his last meal, Jack Johnson wants sauteed vegetables cooked in a van while on a European road trip with his wife. We do tend to eat vegetarian pretty often. Kind of like a less of a demanditarian, I guess you'd say. Like I try my best not to add to the demand of meat production, but at the same time, I'm pretty flexible. I've I was a vegetarian for a while, and then there was this one night where I was at somebody's house in Europe on tour. We've been invited to this dinner, and I was looking at this grandma, or it's like his auntie, basically making this really nice meal, and it had sausage in it. And I just remember thinking, like, there's no way I'm not going to eat this <laughs> yeah. meal. She's about to serve it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so then I just kind of like my new thing, kind of like if it's served to you when you're in somebody's home, and then like... um if the order's already been done and there's like somebody's half a steak left and it's about to get thrown away, it seems so wasteful. I'd always just be like, I might as well like honor that animal. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, I'm flexible, but, um, but we do tend to eat vegetarian quite often at our house. Well, that's my time. Thank you so much, Jack. It was really nice yeah. to chat with you 20 years and six months after the last time. <laughs> I know. That's so cool. Thanks for reminding me. That's yeah. Really cool. It's sure. such a cool show. I had a lot of fun listening to it after I, I'd heard about it. I have to be honest, I learned about it when they asked me if I wanted to be honest. Oh, so I listened fine. to a bunch. I listened to about five episodes like oh, uh, Jake Shimokuro and yeah. uh, Remy, Remy Wolf and, and different ones. And it was so fun listening. So I was excited to do it. Thank you so much. That means a lot. And that was Jack Johnson's last meal. You can find a link to his new album, Meet the Moonlight, and his tour schedule in the show notes. And I look forward to interviewing him again in 2042. One of my best friends wanted me to say that your surf videos are his favorite surf videos of all time. Uh, and he's a surfer cool. and, and he loves them so much. Thank you. That was the best job I ever had was making surf movies. Music's really fun too, but it was like a hard choice to switch over because that's what I was doing before. But tell your friend, thank you. I love making surf movies. Jack mentioned earlier that he listened to a past episode featuring fellow Hawaiian Jake Shimabukuro, an award-winning ukulele player. Yeah, Jake's such a sweet human. I love Oh Jake. my God. He's so sweet. He's such yeah. a sweetheart. Jake's last meal was steamed kumu fish and poi, one of Hawaii's most sacred and traditional foods. Find a link to listen to that episode in the show notes. Thanks to Anne-Marie Bonneau. Her book is called The Zero Waste Chef, Plant Forward Recipes and Tips. And you can find her on Instagram at Zero Waste Chef. This episode was produced by me and Laura Scott. Theme music by Prom Queen. And if Jack's van trip intrigued you, head over to my Instagram page to see some photos from my recent van trip to Southwest Colorado and Southern Oregon. There are lots of pretty pictures of the meals that we cooked up in the van. Find a link in the show notes or go to Hello Rachel Bell on Instagram. 
this podcast is free. So we would love it if you showed your love by giving us a quick five-star review or writing out a quick review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help get the show out to more people, which helps keep us on the air. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Your Last Meal.